It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I've decided to do a new podcast. This one will be called Brown People, a podcast where I speak to politicians, pundits, mothers and thinkers about discovering the stories of people of colour. I'll be your host as we dive into the lives of thoughtful individuals who have maybe courted controversy but have definitely lived a life worth talking about. We'll be talking about the struggles, the triumphs and everything in between as we hear the experiences of people from all over the globe. We'll be getting to the root of what drives them, how they see the world and how the world sees them and how they've overcome the obstacles that life has thrown in their way. This is a podcast that will be an exploration and a conversation. So join us as we shine a light on the stories, struggles, and we look at the lives of people of colour. Please subscribe to it today, whether you're a brown person or not. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome, I'm Royful Brown, your host for Mid-Atlantic, and I'm back in London. On today's episode, we're thrilled to have Eli Merritt, a historian, a thinker, a professor, joining us. Eli's research focuses on American political history, the intersection of demagogues and democracy in the media and ethical leadership. He's currently writing a book on the Continental Congress during the American Revolution, and he has a special interest in not only American politics, but in democracy the worldwide, and how we can strengthen our democracies. Professor Merritt, welcome to Mid-Atlantic. How are you today? I'm doing well, Royfield. Nice to be with you. So good that we've got you on the show right now. Now, before we go on with the show, I need to remind the goodly 5,000 of you that download every episode of Mid-Atlantic, that there is a way that you can ingratiate yourself into my good books. That is by writing us a positive review. Write a review on Apple iTunes and we will, I will, uh, read that out at the start of the show. So I think it's the best and the easiest way that I can get new listeners onto the show. So today are we going to um, dig into your book, sir, which is How to Save 
democracy. Rioters rampaging, waving for the first time inside this capital. Confederate flag that symbolized the cause to destroy America. A mob breaking windows, kicking in doors, breaching the Capitol. American flags on poles being used as weapons, as spears. Fire stingers being thrown at the heads of police officers. We saw with our own eyes rioters menace these halls, threatening the life of the Speaker of the House, literally erecting gallows to hang the Vice President of the United States of America. They've got the gallows set upside this Capitol building. It's time to start using them. Please grab a mask, place it in your lap, and be prepared to don your mask in the event that we get a When the order came to evacuate, we want Trump! We want Trump! I know violence! It's too late for that. I hear the shot ringing out. Eli, there's been a lot of talk in the last 10 years, possibly even slightly longer, that a liberal democracy has been assailed from all sides, from illiberalism on the right and on the left. We're still here in 2023. Doesn't that tell us that our democracy is fundamentally robust? Nothing to see here. Your book, sir, I put it to you, is somewhat out of date. Tell us the reason why we should be worried about democracy and why we should be strengthening it. Well, I think what we have to do is end up prioritizing the problems that we have and starting from the top, hopefully. You know, I think that the worst problem that democracy, I I speak most readily, of course, about democracy in the United States. The worst problem that we have is, it will sound commonplace to say disinformation, but specifically disinformation about elections. And we continue to have this pernicious problem in the United States. The reason that disinformation specifically about elections is the worst problem is there is a natural law of democracy, and that is that democracy depends upon elections, elections depend upon trust, and trust depends upon truth. So we have demagogues in our system. The most important one is Donald Trump with a lot of followers who are also demagogic. And we also have a major news media outlet in the United States, Fox News, which is a profit-driven demagoguery machine. This is the greatest danger. that The people, I think, in democracies do relatively well when they are given the truth, when they're given lies, chaos breaks out, and political violence can also break out. Let's go through at least the way you divided your book. Uh, section one is the virtues of democracy. Number two is challenges and threats. Uh, You seem to have jumped to challenges and threats. And then number three is the way forward. Isn't Fox News really just an outcome of this stage of liberal democracy that we have? Yes, the media is incredibly important in terms of shining a light, uh, the light of truth on our politicians. But when we have media um, which is coalesced around not necessarily outrage, but around specific ideologies, isn't the logical output of that something like Fox News? In Britain, we have GB News. Is it as is it as important as Fox? No, but it is there. In other established 
liberal democracies, there is right-leaning and left-leaning newspapers. So why is it that Fox is so important now? You're correct to say, and in the history of the United States as well, there's great variety to the media and the degree of ethical leadership that is within media, but due in part to technology and the rapid transmission of information, this problem of demagoguery and breakdown of ethics has gotten worse throughout society. As you're speaking of that, we often think that what democracy is, is the people go to the polls and vote, and then by some invisible hand, everything works out niftily. But I think we have oversimplified views of what democracy, or as you say, liberal democracy is. I like to think of democracy as a house built upon a number of cornerstones. And actually, the will of the people or the vote of the people is only one cornerstone. And there are other co-equal cornerstones as well. The rule of law, checks and balances, and the most neglected is ethical leadership. And that includes ethical leadership within the media. So the idea is, do we ever achieve ethical leadership? Maybe not, but the pursuit, what what we are committed to, what we demand from our democratic institutions, including the media, is the truth and other ethical values. How do we quantify ethical leadership? I'm sure if I was a newspaper editor, let's say in Britain in the 1970s, I'd be looking at a halcyon time, maybe the 1950s, when people were more ethical. It seems to me that this is somewhat um, of a slippery bar of soap. You know, how do we quantify ethical leadership? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's, it's perhaps easiest when it's blatant and most everyone involved in the democracy, except those who are being diluted the most, agree on what the bar is. And so, as I mentioned earlier, telling the truth about elections and election outcomes is, I would say, is the beginning of what ethical leadership within, say, a Republican Party in the United States must adhere to and what all media must adhere to. So we've entered into, at least in the United States, a new phase of our history where a major media company, as Rupert Murdoch has acknowledged, due to profit motive, he basically said, it's not about the red and the blue. Some of you might have heard this. It's about the green. So we have really profit over truth, profit over democracy, and most significantly, again, I'll emphasize, is profit over truth about election outcomes. You know, there's a whole host of other virtues, so to speak, or what we should call democratic behavioral values that are very significant, that we that a democracy must always be striving for, such as civility, respect. We've talked about the truth, understanding, cooperation, compromise. These are ideals that if the democracy is not striving for them, democracy falls into peril. I'm a student of history, so I'm always going to try and go back to a period which refutes what you say. If I go back to the end of the 19th century, the Gilded Age in the United States, you had the Yellow Press. The Yellow Press was that pernicious that it it led to riots against uh, the Chinese and the walling up of Chinese neighborhoods all over the United States. It even fundamentally led to a war against Spain. Why are things so different now? America has had a time when its press has been led by the profit motive, by wanting to scandalize and sensationalize, and that's how you got people to buy a certain newspaper, and democracy didn't fail. That's one historical period where the role of the media 
as watchdogs of democracy, not demagogues of democracy, weakened and, as you alluded to, created some problems and had some negative consequences. One historical period experiencing this problem at greater degrees than others doesn't invalidate the fact that that's happening today. But I will say that we've had the most dangerous president who's ever entered the White House in the United States was Donald Trump in 2016. So it's helpful to combine what's happening in the political system and in the government with what's happening in the media. I kind of think there's a dark dance that has been that is so dangerous now and has been and caused problems beginning in 2016. And that is a dance between Rupert Murdoch and Donald Trump. So we have our first demagogue in the White House, which is a severe crisis of our government because demagogues in history are known to cause division and pain and fear-mongering and hate-mongering within the people as the technique that they use, in fact, to gain power and to gain fame. And then the demagogue tilts into authoritarianism. This is well known for many areas of history, including Alexander Hamilton's Federalist Number 1. So we might think of there's a confluence of deep problems within conservative media in the United States, together with deep problems in the Republican Party and recently in the White House. Donald Trump is always put in a certain basket with, let's say, Viktor Orban and Jair Bolsonaro in, in, in Brazil. Haven't we somewhat conflated and maybe even overstated these right-leaning uh, political figures? Yes, the difference is that they don't have the same rhetorical norms of other leaders, but we, we, we live in, in dangerous and choppy times, you know, Gen Xers have less money in their pocket than their parents did at the requisite age, less job security, etc., etc. Maybe what we need is somebody who can uh, cut through traditional political rhetoric, and we have the leader for our times. Well, I don't buy that argument in the least. I would suggest that democracy, at least the Western tradition of democracy, is known to have begun in the 5th century uh, B.C., and at the same time, it appears literally within years, the concept of the demagogue came about. And it was rapidly identified, if you start 5th century forward to the Roman Republic era, that the demagogue represents the greatest danger that exists to democracy because the demagogue can get into office. That is, the talent of the demagogue is inherently to be an individual that has a personality structure which is concerned with self-aggrandizement, not with public service, not with the common good. That's why government is created, successful constitutional republics, successful constitutional uh, democracies, and also successful constitutional mon monarchies are fundamentally created around the importance of blocking certain personality types from gaining power, and that includes demagogues and authoritarians. So this is the essential work of democracy. You might say the most essential work of a successful constitutional democracy is to create systems of checks and balances together with democratic vote that makes certain, and I don't want to neglect political parties because historically in the United States, they have been the chief gatekeeper against demagogues and authoritarians arising to power. But the most important function of good government is to keep dangerous individuals out of positions of power. That's why we have checks and balances. And we've had a dreadful failure of that in the United States with Donald Trump. And I will say I'm not partisan. I don't, political parties really don't matter to me. 
And since we've had the current crisis over the past seven years in our government, I more and more am simply a partisan of Constitution and the rule of law, oath of office, and ethical behavior by officials in government. I'm kind of really interested in, in the process of how we allow for special emergencies within democracies because you know you you've got you took us all the way back to the fifth century bce and you know the the romans kick out uh the last king tarquin and they have <laughs> a, a, a republican senate we we have greece with the formation of democracy as we know it the, the whole word is a you know a greek compound word but we do have the expression draconian, which comes from, you know, Dracos, who was incredibly brutal with the way that um, he um, he led his polis. We, there always was within the, the Roman uh, jurisprudence the position of dictator. Somebody could come and take extraordinary powers. And then if we're to believe democracy as we understand it now, liberal democracy, the voters are always right. Nobody was surprised. Uh, that Donald Trump didn't become presidential before he became president because we heard him on the campaign trail. So I don't 100% understand the fact that we've had a breakdown of the system. The American people got exactly what they wanted, and many Americans would say he, he was an excellent president. I wouldn't be <laughs> one of them, but it's for me to try and at least poke holes in, in your argument. Well, I'll say, uh, now you're on to my favorite topic, which I sometimes think this is what I'm going to be working on for the rest of my life. Our presidential nominating system in the United States is broken. It's an abysmal failure, and Donald Trump has demonstrated that to be true. Essentially, the presidential nominating system in the United States, since for most of our, most of our 250-year history, less the past 50 years when things were reformed in the early 1970s, most of our in most of our history, political parties have been the organs of democracy that have put forth candidates for president, and then those candidates from whatever number of parties in this country for a very long time, just two parties, the people would vote upon the candidates that were put forth by the parties. Well, go back to the early 1970s for many reasons, many of which had good intentions. We changed the presidential nominating system to direct presidential primaries. And that is a big mistake because we took out the check and balance of a political party where democracies work best. And we could talk a little bit about the British system, about which I know little, but you do have checks and balances against the rise of demagogues and authoritarians better than we do. But essentially, political parties used to establish... Professor Merritt, let, let me yeah. stop you there. Right. I used to be able to be to be pretty smug in these types of conversations. But we've had Boris Johnson, who is a, a poor man's Donald Trump. And in terms of political extremism, we had, we had Liz Truss, who lasted, what, 46 days. <laughs> you know, so so radical was her economic uh, credo that she was kicked out by her own party uh, not even two months in. So our checks and balances somewhat need to be strengthened as well. But 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 as he was, sir. No, so no, no. I, I, I agree, but good. I I would argue uh, that Liz Truss doesn't belong in that characterization you're, we're even discussing of someone who's potentially dangerous to the Constitution. Boris Johnson, yes, maybe there's some threat. There's some in him, some of what we call constitutional hardball. So it would have been better if checks and balances had prevented him from rising. But the threat is greater in the United States because we we do not have 
a check and balance as you do of a party. The people vote for the party and then the party's voting for the leader. In the United States, as I was saying, we used to have parties that would create political platforms and then select the individual they believed would best support the political platform. And necessarily, there was a sense that the individual must be a constitutionalist. The individual must be someone who will support the rule of law, free and fair elections. That is broken down somewhat. So I believe it will be necessary in the United States for us to reform the presidential nominating system. I don't think it will probably happen until we have another worse crisis than January 6th. But this is no way to run a democracy. The best democracies throughout history are representative democracies, not direct democracies. They've been known to be dangerous. And we've had the greatest lesson of the danger of too much direct democracy in the United States with the election of Donald Trump in 2016. And we just hope it won't happen again in 2014. If we look at the, the this whole sweep of American presidents, you know, you had 200 and odd years of, you know, uh, uh, electing these these men to this role because you've had one supposed anomaly the system is broken now i keep coming back to the same point and don't, don't get me wrong i actually believe there are things which are broken in, in the system but at least need to uh kick kick your tire so to speak and, and walk around your car and see if it, it stands up here if you've had but remember the problem emerged in the 1970s the, okay. the problem that tr- everyone agrees that if we had not had direct presidential primaries, if we had had the traditional party system as the source of the presidential nominee, that everyone I've spoken to, no one is contradicted to me in, in, in weeks and, and months of speaking about this. No one has said, well, I think Donald Trump probably would have been elected by the Republican Party if we did not have primary. No one is. So if there's anything that can stop a dangerous demagogue, it's worthy of consideration for reform. The main reason why Trump was elected is because there were so many Republicans running and the anti-Trump vote was split. He never got correct, more correct. than 30 percent. So, you know, um, I'm no big Nixon fan, but since the Democrats changed uh, the way that uh, presidential primaries are done, we've had Nixon. Um, Watergate was a was a total disaster, but actually he's an incredibly competent president. You know, uh, he then we had Ford. Then we had Carter, we had Reagan, we had Bush, Clinton. The system works. I, I put it to you, you Americans don't need to change anything, nothing to see here. It's all working. It's because of the crowded <laughs> Republican field. Well, that's one topic that can be discussed that could be obviated through what you know we call here ranked choice voting. No, I don't think you're right. The system didn't hold. I think the best way to think of it is, For one thing, Nixon is a mosquito bite compared to Donald Trump. But for the other is, we dodged a bullet with Donald Trump. The system did hold. That's right. And why? Essentially due to human beings who were ethical. So it validates this incredible principle that it is ethical leadership that holds together a democracy. The Constitution is important. There is an iterative dynamic uh, interchange that happens between human beings and their institutions, they, they they control one another. But if you get the breakdown of ethical leadership, we could lose our democracy. We had a greatly ethical military. They stayed uninvolved. They were on the right side of history and also on the right side of truth. But with time, demagogues and, and media like this corrupts people. It makes them feel fearful. So if we get on 
into a civil war modality, folks are going to have to choose sides. And make no mistake, a worse January 6th could lead to the installation, a worse January 6th with some involvement of military, could lead to the installation in the United States of an arbitrary government illegitimately elected. And what the hell are we going to do then? Aren't we playing down the strength of America's civil uh, organizations? You know, the regulation of the intermediate sphere, you know, uh, the quality of its associations. You, you, you called it ethics, and one of the first questions was, how do we quantify ethical standards? And, and I think we can't. But any civil society does need associations where different people come together and create networks, and these act as a bulwark against some level of uh, true authoritarianism. And whilst you might have crystallised it down to um, the military, then people... I don't think you quite said this, but let's say there were some people within the administration who said maybe Trump is going too far. I'm not going to put this piece of paper in front of him or we're not going to do this. We're not going to do that. But fundamentally, there is a there is a surplus of um, democratic strength here uh, within America. And it's to do with uh, associations and how they act away from the, the pointer of, of the government. And this is fundamentally how any liberal democracy truly, truly works. It isn't just political parties. It, it is um, the, the association of lawyers. It's the scouts groups. It's all these other things so that we do have uh, this resilience when democracy is truly threatened by liberal forces. Yes, let me first just very briefly touch on the question of what it means to be ethical. I think it's very valid if you and I say, well, is this person ethical? Is that person? It's subjective. But the things that say, the thing that saves the day is we have codes of ethics, written codes of ethics, and then we can decide who's ethical based upon the written code of codes of ethics. And as a point of beautiful reference for anyone who has an interest our news outlet, public news outlet in the United States uh, called NPR, has one of the most beautiful uh, codes of ethics you'll ever see. I've searched for these for CNN and MSNBC and other outlets, and I can't find them. But on my newsletter, American Commonwealth on Substack, my homepage there, I highlight these code of ethics, the code of ethics by NPR. And for anyone who can, who wants to doubt that you can have excellent news media plus excellent codes of ethics, go there and have a look. The issue about civil society that you described, civil society as another aspect of fundamental democratic institutions, is so correct. And I'm so glad you bought that, brought that up because my greatest source of hope in rescuing, so to speak, our democracy from its current beleaguered state is in the people. So basically, you have just defined in all of those institutions, whether the Boy Scouts or others, that is the people. So the people have a lot to do right now, I think, with getting behind reform of our democracy. But certainly, if we get into deep crisis, the people and all these civil society organizations are going to be fundamental to protest and demanding change in whatever way required, nonviolent. Is fight, fight, fight like Martin Luther King. I'm worried with worse crisis, we're going to really have to take to the streets, as, for example, we saw in Israel over the past week or so. 
This is a recording of the podcast Mid-Atlantic. This is my ninth year of doing these podcasts and I speak to thinkers, politicians, pundits from both sides of the Atlantic and we talk about the issues of the day, primarily in the US and in the UK, but sometimes globally. Today we're speaking to Professor Eli Merritt who has written the book How to Save Democracy. If you're listening to this at home, what you can do is download the Clubhouse app, which means you dear listener, could be in the audience for one of the recordings of this show. Um, In the last 20 minutes, because you are a good and determined and loyal listener, you will know that uh, people do come up and ask questions of the person who we're interviewing. You could be that person if you download the Clubhouse app to your phone. So please go do that. I would love to have you on one of the live recordings of this show. Professor, us Brits used to be incredibly smug. We, we'd say we're the oldest democracy in the world. I know you Americans keep claiming that, but actually we had politicians go in and out of power before America was even thought about. We don't even have a constitution. There is no guide in ethics to the way that the, Brit- the British government is run. But uh, And we said, oh, you know what, we don't, we don't need all these different amendments. We just get on and do things. But we've had a choppy time since Brexit in, in Hungary. We have uh, Viktor Orban. Uh, Hungary is to be pretty happy with him. He's won four elections. Uh, the rest of the EU isn't. Uh, we have the PiS party in in Poland, and they're um, somewhat illiberal. Uh, but Poland is still a functioning democracy. Don't you think you're beating up on America too much? In terms of whatever the problems are with the structure of American democracy, and yes, there are some, uh, the Electoral College, for a startup, two senators <laughs> for every state, regardless of size, except which means that somebody's vote in Iowa is, is worth much more than somebody's vote in California. There are structural problems, but we have a wider problem, don't we? We have a wider problem with authoritarian figures throughout the Western world in the established democracies. Why, sir? Uh, the first, th- the first thing I'm interested in. Uh responding to you just briefly is what you said about Britain being the oldest democracy, oldest surviving democracy. I think it is very poorly understood that excellence in a representational government, primarily representational republics, the Republican form of government, did, in my view, originate in Great Britain after the Glorious Revolution of 1688. Your government transformed into a monarchical republic. And that is something that is described, I'm pretty sure, in that language oh, in, in some of the most beautiful writings about democratic representational government ever written. And that is also from Great Britain, Cato's letters by two political writers in the 1720s. So I do believe that we should be more humble in the United States and recognize the vast majority of the government that we have was inherited from Great Britain. And I'm very grateful for that. We never could <laughs> we never could have invented uh, what we did uh, without uh, 90% of it simply being inherited from Great Britain. Now on to the great question of foreign affairs of why we have all all this advancement of authoritarian uh, government. Uh, I'm not sure I have a, a good answer to that. I think that if we explore digital communications, we're going to find uh, there's a lot of discussion at this. As you know, this this book was derived from the first Summit for Democracy, this book of quotations. And there was a great deal of discussion there about uh, digital authoritarianism. And it's pretty well understood that 
the authoritarian forces have taken greater advantage of uh, digital uh, communications than democratic forces. So a big focus of the Summit uh, for Democracy in 2021, and actually the second one's taking place now, is essentially internet. It is incumbent upon us to make certain that the evolution of these new technologies have a net positive effect on democracy and not a net negative effect. That means we have to really talk about and figure out new ways of thinking while maintaining all the constitutional protections behind free speech. We have to really begin to think of how speech is the lifeblood of a democracy. What happens if the lifeblood becomes poisoned? We have new problems we have to figure out. We have to adapt, and we could discuss more about the limits on free speech that exist in the United States. We probably will have to expand on our understandings of those, such as the incitement to violence uh, limitations in constitutional law in the United States. Well, those limitations we have now are certainly not working in the digital 21st century. So there's a lot of adaptation, reform, and innovation, I think, that's going to be essential to making certain that the forces of ethical constitutional democracy do triumph over disinformation and demagoguery. Gotcha. I want to move to the way forward, and I do want to get other voices up on the stage because people are probably getting bored of me asking my uh, one-track questions. But if I if I go through um, the different headings on your book, in your book, sorry, for the for the way forward, freedom from prejudice and discrimination and violence, diversity, inclusion, equality, and election integrity, the rule of law, judicial independence, free and independent media, truth, transparency, and trust economic justice, climate justice, civic virtue, and global unity. It's a lot, isn't it? It's, a, it's, it's most definitely a lot. How are we going to achieve all of that, you know, in the foreseeable future? <laughs> Great question. Uh, I think the, the best answer I have for that is prioritization. And within those, uh, I think, which is somewhat evident from the nature of our conversation, or my, at least my areas of interest uh, as, as evidence today, that we have to prioritize and we have to figure out if the bloodstream of democracy is being poisoned, what are the most important poisons? And so looking at the, at the chapter titles that you read, I would say that reform or attention to uh, the free and independent media, I believe, to compete, to continue repeating a, a, a word that is sometimes controversial, but ethical, we need free, independent, and ethical media. We need free media that is at least pursuing the truth and is subordinating profit to the truth. I think that would carry us in, in, in a remarkably uh, positive direction mo- moving forward. And then you made a, then you mentioned civic virtue, which is another way of emphasizing the ethical concepts. I will say that democracy, since democracy has been studied, no intelligent thinker about democracy has ever said anything but this. Civic virtue is essential to democracy. Democracy cannot survive without civic virtue. And to translate that into other terms, perhaps more current today, is democracy can't survive without ethical infrastructure. So I'd say we prioritize uh, those things. Certainly, we don't want to see a weakening of the rule of law. Folks are probably aware right now that Donald Trump is is in battle with Alvin Bragg, a district attorney, who is probably going to bring an indictment against him in New York. 
I'm fascinated by the way disinformation, not only of Trump, but Fox News, other conservative media, and other Republicans, disinformation is now damaging the rule of law. That's a very threatening thing. So far, the rule of law is strong, but you can weaken it. It it can be swept away. Now is the time, people in the audience, uh, to throw your hands up in the air like you just don't care uh, and come up and ask a question. All right, so, so first off, um, we have Stephanie. Stephanie, welcome uh, to the stage. What's your question for the professor? Thank you, Royfield, and great to have you here. It's interesting, the work that I did with the Lincoln Project, I was the former Republican consultant for years, and in 2016, um, was very clear that Donald Trump was going to be elected. There were many, many indicators, uh, regardless of how many surveys got it wrong. Um, I think if we'd been asking different questions, we would have gotten it right. And I appreciate your breakdown in terms of how you're seeing things. I think it's very consistent with what our collective concerns were relative to understanding that we were leaning hard into authoritarianism and all of the factors sort of pressing on that. I'm, I'm curious from your perspective, I, I have to be honest, I'm probably deemed a little Pollyannish in my typical outlook for the world, but I'm I'm feeling less optimistic. And, and what I'm curious from your perspective is when we look at so many factors that are impacting why we are where we are today, the ability to, in a very sophisticated, directed way, um, handle and execute disinformation campaigns, low information voters that are targeted, et cetera. When, when we look at, when you look at this, um, the way certainly I think very consistently with the way that I did, do you have like a top one or two things that you're thinking about? If we could really do this, this will make a difference. Yeah, let me first say uh, thank you for whatever you've done for the Lincoln Project. Uh, it's a perfect example of what Roy Field was earlier making reference to in terms of important civil uh, society organizations. And I would say that's what, what has, in fact, most stood out to me about their work is this is Republicans of conscience uh, who said no to this and, and noticed that it was demagogic, noticed that it was di- disinformation and dangerous to our democracy. I feel like you're bringing up the question again of prioritization. Before me right now, in my mind's eye, is a dangerous uh, disinformation peddling uh, demagogue like Donald Trump who, if he was at a, one of his rallies by himself, at most, he would be affecting, and to, to not exaggerate too much, he would be poisoning the mind with lies and delusions of, at most, 15,000 people or so, is the number that was claimed was at his first rally in Waco just a few days ago. But then we have the problem of the amplifiers and megaphones that end up sending that information out. He's a presidential candidate. That's fine. But if he is uh, an anti-democratic force, and I don't, I don't want to get too subjective about that, if he is clearly propagating lies that do damage to our elections and to our democracy, then I, I would hope that ethical media would essentially not cover him or cover him in a manner in which is demonstrating, as we're discussing here today, we're going to show you a clip of... Donald Trump giving a speech because it's a ripe, fruitful lesson in what a demagogue is and the way disinformation poisons democracies and turn it into a lesson in democracy. So it's the change in the media, I think, is the single most important thing. News media, number one, social media, number two, and to uh, government can do some things, 
but to demand codes of ethics within these all-important uh, media bodies, particularly the news media. And I, I won't go into it now, but recently, uh, w- when it was found that Fox was egregiously knew that these were lies, not just interviewing folks about it, Charles Schumer and Jeffries, the two leaders of the, uh, the, the Democratic Congress, wrote a beautiful letter in which they demanded that Rupert Murdoch, Rupert Murdoch and other executives at Fox stop spreading the big lie. They apologize and they tell the people the truth for the sake of our democracy. Now, that's a small demand, but I think the people of the country need to start demanding that we have the truth within our democracy. And if enough people get behind it, it will make a big difference. Thank you. For that. Thank you, everyone. Stephanie, uh, thank you for that. Let's go to Steve Crone. I've heard a lot about the challenges, threats, maybe even poisons in our democracy. I've heard a lot about the end state that we want to get to. I'd like to hear a little more, and not that you haven't talked about it, about how we get from here to there. Because I think the the problems seem pretty clear to me. Some of the aspirations you say we need to get to also seem pretty clear to me. But what seems a lot less clear is, as a practical matter, given the political landscape in our country, how do we get from here to there? That's a great question. And I have to absolutely confess that I have spent years trying to figure out what, what what's the diagnosis? How do we name the problems in our democracy today? And to my own satisfaction, you know, in dialogue with others and reading a tremendous amount, I feel confident, I do at least, about some of the diagnostic uh, problems that we have. So getting to the cures and solutions is much more challenging, of course. And it's all the more challenging when we live in a society that is just run through with what we can say money and politics or the political industrial complex, because all systems, political systems, are rigid and resistant to change. But I don't know that in history any democracy or any country has been so challenged by the rigidity of profiteering and profit-making based on the political system. So that is something uh, that's greatly worrisome. If we remember back to the crisis in the 1850s, when the decision was made, uh, by many at least, that we'd come to the end with this expansion of slavery problem, and because none of the parties were addressing that true crisis, moral crisis, crime against humanity crisis, the Republican Party sprung up in 1854, and by 1860, it won the presidential election. That's remarkable. I'm worried that we don't have the flexibility or, or, or humanity to uh, make changes like that. But I do believe, uh, it, it may sound exaggerated to some, I do believe that polit- one political party, the Republican Party in the 1850s, successfully fought against the barbarism of um, slavery. And I believe today, I believe that the uh, uh, even going back a few years, you hear me advocating for the Republican Party and making changes, but it could be that that party is lost, is a lost cause. But the great news is we have one, an, a, a wonderful party. And again, I say this being nonpartisan, the Democratic Party is the hope of this nation right now. No matter what crisis happens, if the Democratic Party in the United States stays strong, stays ethical, keep continues to carry the flag of the Declaration of Independence with regard to all people are created equal, we may undergo some severe trials, 
but the values of democracy will prevail so long as the Democratic Party remains strong. If it decides instead it's going to follow the corrupt manner of disinformation, demagoguery, and even authoritarianism of the Republican Party, that's where we're going to have a real problem. Two corrupt parties in the United States, I don't have any hope for that. But one will, I hopefully, push us forward to a better day. We should really see if we can maybe come back and uh, really test the hypothesis of whether the Democratic Party is, uh, as we say in Britain, fit for purpose in this regard, because I kind of think that it isn't. But but anyway, uh, Marcus, you are up next, sir. Yeah. To be honest, um, I think Trump is a product, a symptom, and not necessarily the end problem. But anyway, I say that as a physician, and I'm a capitalist too, so I think that the root problem actually of our society and of all hyper-individualized societies, the, the, the solution to all problems, the reduction on money, that's the real problem. And that causes the algorithms which feed that Tucker has a value of half a billion dollar, that, you know, we get fed. It's true. So you can Google it. That, uh, you know, that, you know, people who say outrageous stuff are more successful. Yeah. And we are just at the beginning because AI, and there was actually a, a something signed by a thousand people yesterday, including Elon Musk, caution. The implementation, the run of AI will make it more complicated. And there's a simple antidote. And that is to find strategies to rebalance money with trust building. And I believe we need a new institution in our society, like maybe the central bank, who mitigates through interest rates financial distress. And we need some sort of an institutional approach, but also a, a, a from down up approach to increase common sense and trust. Here, here. I, I want to say that, but kind of pulling things into the problem of money and profiteering. Within democracy and society in general, I, I can only just applaud what you're saying. All I would add is, I think you said you were a physician, I'm not sure, but one of my favorite concepts in biology, which I now extrapolate everywhere, is this concept of interactionism. If we're looking at what are the cause of most uh, emotional, uh, mental illnesses, is typically an interaction between childhood development and uh, genetics, for example. So to depart from that, I think all of these elements we've talked about, money and politics, the media, demagogues, checks and balance, it all is interacting at all times. But I'm with you. I have, seems like since I was 12 years old, I have named that the worst problem in American politics today is money and politics. Uh, that's no longer front and center because there are acute dangers uh, who could, you know, burn down uh, the U.S. Capitol. And so I'm more focused on that, but I applaud everything you just said. Thank, Thank you for that question, uh, Marcus. Uh, Andrea, uh, you are up next. Um, just so you know, uh, Professor Merritt, uh, Andrea runs a very successful uh, regular room on this app. She is frequently uh, worried about the state of American democracy. So this is most definitely in her wheelhouse. Andrea, over to you. Thank you, Royfield, and uh, lovely to meet you, Professor Thanks, for sharing your time. I haven't had a chance to read your book, and I was coming exactly to the question about your thoughts on 
money uh, in politics, and I appreciate the priority that you're putting on um, the elections and what's happening with the Republican Party and trust and mis- and disinformation, but the money is really a driver behind what keeps enabling all of this. And then finally, uh, I just want to land with, back to your point on leadership, we are watching gridlock and an inability in this country to protect our children. And so there's something about legitimacy of, of leadership in terms of government's effectiveness to deliver. And I wonder if you could talk about that, because that goes beyond elections, how a country is being governed and led and what's being delivered for the people. I'll, I'll let you clarify your question if you want. Um, as you as I think you were posing your question, it made me think of the uh, yet yet another tragic school shooting that took place in Nashville just a few days ago. I, let me ask you, were you referring to that type of yeah. uh, dis- dysregulation in our society? Yes. Wow. Well, now I'm stumped. <laughs> I mean, certainly uh, the most important factor there is the deadliness of the way these rampages are carried out. And if it was with pocket knives, I think we wouldn't have such a big problem, or even if it were with swords. So absolutely, guns is a major uh, part of um, that problem. And so why do we have this problem of guns uh, in the United States, assault rifles and uh, weapons of mass murder? Well, again, I don't really mean to pick on the Republican Party. I I believe that it is essential to democracy at the minimum to have a strong liberal party and a strong conservative party. I just don't want it to be this conservative party. The Republican Party is no longer conservative. It's really just absolutely lost its way. So uh, I, I, I do hope that we experience in the coming decades a demise and disappearance of the Republican Party. And in its stead, I would hope that a strong Republican Party under the leadership of a, a great American, even though I don't agree with all her policies, Liz Cheney. And I say great American just because she is incredibly ethical. She is a person of conscience and she is the best example in my lifetime, certainly, of what we know, what we know based on John F. Kennedy's book, The Profiling Courage, of what a profiling courage is. So, um, you know, we have to solve the problem of guns to solve the problem of these mass shootings. And there's also, I'll say, I don't want to run on too long, but I do believe with regard to violence that Freud wrote a great deal, obviously, about the aggressive instinct and the violent instinct in human beings, and that it is the job of the civilization to manage that and channel that in a positive direction. And so that tells me civilization is is making mistakes. I'll also say that if you turn to existential philosophy and existential psychotherapy, you find that the dominant concerns are meaninglessness and loneliness. So there again, there's deep problems within our culture, I think. And I, again, I don't have nifty answers to these things. I do believe the breakdown of religion is very significant, the moral infrastructure and the caring infrastructure of religion. And I'm also no proponent of, of, of certainly religion and government, so I'm stumped with that as well. I, and one qualifying thing was that what this has led me to, to start thinking about not only what ethical leadership is, but legitimacy in our elected leaders when problems like these... Uh, the, the death of our most vulnerable citizens, even though they don't vote and they don't pay taxes, 
uh, their lives are not protected. And it's it makes me start to wonder about um, the effectiveness and the efficiency and the legitimacy of government. I hear you. So we have to remedy that because not not uh, not that I'm pointing the finger at you in this regard, that you're suggesting to me is slippery in terms of, you know, the democratic process is being illegitimate. Therefore, we should replace it with something else. I think we have to adapt and evolve democracy, which is hands down the best form of government, the only form of government that protects our freedoms, only form of government, as these summits of democracies have emphasized, that actually promotes self-actualization and self-realization. Uh, but government is failing in all the ways that you have described. The real question is, how do we, can we, and it's our job to just simply do our best, push it forward in a direction of adaptation, again, I think, to the tremendous technology challenges that we're facing. I think often we think, well, internet and digital communications are involved. We don't understand how deeply involved they are in the chaos, confusion, and pain that we're suffering today. Thank you uh, for those excellent questions there, Andrea. Because you're special, I allowed you to ask two questions, but only you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. John pierre I must admit, sir, whenever I look at your PTR, I have the world's worst bout of hair envy. Me being a, a man who can't <laughs> around his, on top of his head. I look at the and I go, you were rubbing my nose in it, sir. But John pierre apart from just being Jesus, why don't you fire your question to Eli Merrick? There's always hope. There's hope tomorrow. Um, hi, everyone. Uh, hi, Eli. Hello. Uh, I really was intrigued by the title of your book and the sort of subtitle of your book that talks about virtues and challenges and threats. And so my question has to do with the threats. We may be an indictment for the first time of a former president. And I had a question about that. I've been asking people who are historians and people who are politicos and people who lived through things like Watergate for their perspective about what happens next should that end up being the case that Trump is indicted because we haven't seen this particular scenario play out in history. But 
we have seen many politicians charged and convicted of crimes. We've seen many politicians go to prison, but somehow this is the moment that's unprecedented. And I've been having this conversation often because I feel like it's unprecedented because we allowed it to become unprecedented. We mm -hmm. elevated the executive branch to a place that was in fact above the law. And so when we say no one is above the law, I don't believe that that's in fact true because there's a memo at DOJ that you can't indict the sitting president. You had Robert Mueller, who was a special counsel, who said, I'm not saying he didn't commit the crime, but impeachment is actually the constitutional process, not a trial in the courts that any of us would have a trial in. And so my, my question is one, do you agree that we set this situation up where Trump was allowed to get away with what he got away with because he was protected by the shell of the White House? Do you agree with that? And two, what does it mean for democracy when he's indicted? Because, of course, the argument on their side is we've become a banana republic. So their argument actually is about democracy, too, in a weird way that somehow mm -hmm. is politicized. But, of course, it's a disingenuous argument because the only reason he announced so early the earliest ever announcement for president was because he knew that Merrick Garland went by the book and Merrick Garland was going to recuse himself. And so we're seeing re repeat of history in a way from his presidency that he's shielded himself with his candidacy now. And so I want to know your thoughts on all these things and then what happens the day after a potential indictment. Well, I think you put it very, very beautifully, in fact, and I will try to be brief. I'll say lots of areas of grievous failure in our democracy. It starts with our presidential nominating system in 2016 for the reasons we've discussed, failing to block an authoritarian demagogue, and then the Republican Party. There was no or almost no uh, Republicans of conscience and courage who stood up and just said no to Donald Trump as a dangerous figure to our democracy. Then within once in government, the founders did devise a system specifically for re for removing demagogues and authoritarian-type political leaders. We tried twice. We almost got there. Very sadly, the Senate failed the second time by 10 votes. It can almost bring me to tears. Failed by 10 votes to convict, which is unimportant, Donald Trump. But more importantly, the next vote after that is permitted is to permanently disqualify him from future federal office. So one of the darkest days in our democracy to me, more than January 6th, is I think the date's February 13th, 2021, when the Senate failed to permanently disqualify Trump from office. Okay, so that's another area of failure. So now, now we're left with the rule of law. So it's the rule of law against disinformation and Trump is a demagogue. And Trump is an authoritarian lying about elections. The rule of law must triumph. That is the critical thing. And this case in Manhattan is it's sad because it's such a weak case, but it is the rule of law, so I respect it. I have much greater hope for the for the case from Georgia and also Jack Smith's case. And so, yes, there's a little element of banana republic, there's no question, but we can't not invite the rule of law to do its work during a dangerous time simply because it it may cause some further compromise in the democracy. I think the net gain of the rule of law triumphing, triumphing, so to speak, over Trump and his egregious attempt at an auto coup 
is much more important than the downstream consequences of that victory of the rule of law. Thank you for that. Yeah, you know, one of the things I advocate for news outlets to say is former president, now civilian, because we have to be really clear that this man can't be protected in the White House and then out of the White House. Yes, yes, agreed. Uh, great point. Uh, great question there, John Pierre. Now, David, go for it. Harkening back to some to a quote that, that Franklin gave when he was exiting the Philadelphia Congress Hall about what we elected or what we pr- produced, and he goes, you know, obviously a republic if we can keep it. And here we are, you know, 250-plus years later, uh, those words are echoing rather saliently here uh, with regard to all the countries around the world that are backsliding from democracy into autocracies and, you know, America obviously being challenged in a way that I've never seen a challenge before, at least in my lifetime. And my question is, is that, you know, obviously the way we were built, we were built on the on the idea of the philosopher king and how, you know, the, the subjects of this sort of republic aren't necessarily the highest and best, you know, uh, leaders of our leadership should be above the fray and on some level. And I think my question is, are we trying to, are we trying to not convey some sort of massive failing with our system by indicting Donald Trump? Or are we, are we really, you know, just trying to just, uh, micromanage a, a bad situation with regard to 75 million voters who voted for this guy and it's not, it's not an easy pathway forward and uh but i think we're either a rule of we're either a government of laws or of men and i think that ultimately should hold carry today but what do you think is regard to uh you know us honoring that that reality versus being a, a government of men on some level thank you yeah, there are competing principles uh, within democracy, certainly. And one of the most significant is when the will of the people, uh, 75 million people or, or, or more, uh, is competing with, for example, a lawless uh, president. And so this question came up quite a bit, and I did a little writing about it. I'm thinking of a piece in the LA Times uh, that this idea of the Senate, if the, the Congress, if it were to impeach and convict and disqualify Trump, this is outrageous, and they're overcoming uh, the will of the people. That, to me, is evidence that we actually are not appropriately understanding what democracy is. Even democracy as a term is a terrible misnomer, because democracy just simply means the people vote and we abide by the vote. Well, true sophisticated ethical constitutional democracy or representational democracy or the Republican form of government is far more sophisticated, and the rule of law and these powers of impeachment, conviction, and disqualification, again, are equally, if not more important at that moment, certainly, than the will of the people. Um, uh, I'm going to quickly read, you brought up Benjamin Franklin. James Madison, soon after he left the uh, Constitutional Convention in 1787, wrote in Federalist 57 what the aim of a political constitution is, and it makes a tremendous amount of sense to me. He says, the aim of every political constitution is or ought to be first... I want to emphasize first, to obtain for rulers men who possess most wisdom to discern and most virtue to pursue the common good of the society. So, of course, now it's men and women. Uh, but he, he has said there something profound, that the entire purpose behind 
government and that design of a government is to make sure we get ethical leaders into office. And so it's obvious by now that I'm in deep agreement with this principle. Eli, I hear you and I hear the, the critique of American democracy and the fact that this might be a time now for America to really learn from the rest of the world. Gerrymandering, for argument's sake, this isn't an issue in any other um, established democracy. It just isn't. You know, whether it's Britain, when we have the Electoral uh, Boundaries Commission, there is an organisation that draws the boundaries uh, around for constituencies and they put out their formula. Uh, everybody can look at their formula. Uh, they draw the boundaries. People might quibble and you can petition, but people just get on. And, you know, gerrymandering is not an issue in Canada. It's not an issue in Germany. It's not an issue in, in the United Kingdom. So, yes, America can learn from the rest of the world about various elements of how it goes about um, reinforcing its democracy. But for me, th there is something truly missing because we're not seeing the rise of demagogues everywhere, but we have seen um, strong men, strong women who have come to power who are refuting some elements of the, the liberal compacts, whether it's Maloney in Italy, Marine Le Pen, in France. So this isn't just a, a guy thing. Uh, and then Orban, the president, Erdogan in, in Turkey, etc. And surely for all of the mechanisms to strengthen our democracies, I actually think our democracies are made, could well be stronger than, than we all giving them credit. But it's the, it's, the pluralization of media, the fact that we can be siloed socially from our neighbors, and the fact that for the first time since the dawn of the Industrial Revolution, we have a generation of people coming to maturity who are not going to be as well off as their parents. And the previous generation is marginal if they were actually better than uh, the, uh, the golden generation. That is the reason, the fundamental reason why our institutions are fraying. Because hope, relative hope, and is, is frayed, and we don't know who our neighbours are in this digital fractured uh, society that we now live in, where we can consume the news that we want to because it says the things that we want to, so we don't reach out to others. Because otherwise, we wouldn't have had a Boris Johnson in the UK. We wouldn't have had Brexit. We wouldn't have Marine Le Pen in France. We wouldn't have Maloney in Italy, etc. We wouldn't have Viktor Orban in Hungary. There are global things. And fundamentally, neoliberalism has led us down a cul-de-sac as well as a fractured media. Everything you've said uh, makes good sense to me, Roy Field. I would say also importantly, that we are at a point, and maybe this is the most uh, concerning thing, we are at a point where folks are, I mean, some folks are losing confidence in democracy itself. And so I believe that's in some part where you get straight to the strong man or strong woman is when people have decided democracy is a failed uh, operation. And uh, so we are happy to have the strong man come in and reestablish order on disorder. 
specifically in the United States, I don't know the statistics, but if you go back to 2015 before Trump was nominated and then elected, I don't, you wouldn't find many people in this country who said, well, I'm a little bit skeptical about democracy. Uh, but what happens is when you get the demagogue or authoritarian into power, let's be clear, the demagogue creates chaos. The demagogue, him or herself, along with the sycophants within the party and the sycophants within the media, they actively create chaos where once there was an ordered democracy. So people don't fully realize with the source of the disorder, but they certainly begin to think to themselves, hmm, is there a better way we could go about society? And that, of course, is where the strongman or authoritarian does come in. They do impose order, a loss of freedoms, order, unconstitutional order, but they do oppose, impose order on chaos. And so that's a well-known, uh, I don't know if I've mentioned that my favorite lecture I give is Alexander Hamilton's theory of democratic collapse, a president commences a demagogue and ends a tyrant. That's from Federalist uh, One. Anyway, there's a process there of movement from demagogic chaos in democracy towards authoritarianism. And I think that figures at least somewhat in the global problems that you have uh, noted. couple more questions from me. Uh, 12.15 we know that's from Magna Carta. You mentioned the Glorious Revolution, so props to you, big ups to you for mentioning us Brits, 1688. <laughs> uh, the American Revolution, 1776. The French Revolution, 1789. I, I could go on, but I, I'll, I'll jump through. Honourable mention goes uh, to France, 1848, uh, where they said that all men, regardless of uh, social class, could vote. And then we have the civil rights movement in the United States in, in the 1960s. These are all significant milestones in the formation of Western democracy. I'm going to ask you to uh, get out your crystal ball now and give it a good rub, right? And what's going to be the next milestone? What is going to be the thing uh, that, let's say, maybe in 50 years' time, uh, we, you and I will be talking on Clubhouse and you'll go, Royfield, you missed out this date. It was 20 what? Uh, what is going to be that thing that's going to help to buttress and form our democracy? I'll, I'll first mention the nonspecific thing. And uh, and that is to repeat, reform of the demagogic disinformation generating, the profit-fueled disinformation and demagoguery of media. If we get to a place of some solution of that, or maybe there could be a specific date, where we pass a bill that somehow protects free speech, but also uh, protects us from the po these poisons that we've talked about. But also, if if there is going to be a time in the next, uh, I hope, several months, <laughs> but I'll say the next years or decades, when people say this is the date when the Republican Party died, I think that will be tremendous. And if it's someone like, and the cudgel was picked up, not the cudgel, I'm sorry, and the gauntlet was picked up, by a, a, a conservative party under the leadership of someone like Liz Cheney, I think that will be uh, a bit of the glorious revolution in the United States, to be honest. Eli Merritt, thank you for coming on to Mid-Atlantic and sharing with us your thoughts from your book, How to Save Democracy. Um, just tell everybody um, how they can find it and what you're working on at the moment, sir. Well, I, I write a, a newsletter that's not, it won't come in your inbox that often. It's typically no more than four or five times a month on Substack 
called American Commonwealth. And I really try and focus, you know, on what are the political disorders uh, affecting democracy today and what are solutions to them. And what I'm working on right now is talking about books as I wrap up How to Save Democracy, my history book, which is really the labor of years called Disunion Among Ourselves, The Perilous Politics of the American Revolution. I'm just going to move straight to promoting that book and I'm organizing a book tour and things like that. So what I really love to do is to write but I'm a bit deprived of writing right now as I'm as I'm really enjoying uh, doing uh, podcast conversations just like this with you, Roy Field. So thank you. Uh, how many podcast conversations have you done in the last week? Probably seven or eight. In the past two weeks, I've done 15 or 16. All right. Now, be honest. I'm only no, backed totally. up by 70 friends. Where does this rank? Oh, this one? Yeah. This is by far my most enjoyable experience on a podcast. I'll be honest with you. I like your style. But the very idea that we're having a town hall type experience and other people are participating is just wonderful. This is my favorite. Uh, that's totally honest. No one else has asked me that question, uh, but I don't know what answer I would have given. But no, this has been fantastic. I think the model you have here is really worth emulating elsewhere. That, Eli, was the right answer. Well, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> There you go, folks. That's been the end of the recording uh, of, of Mid-Atlantic. I hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, you've had quite a lot of content from me this week. Uh, you've had, uh, were we, uh, is the world even in a banking crisis? We don't normally talk about finance here and Mid-Atlantic, but you had uh, Miki Gabriel um, give us, uh, run the rule over uh, these three banks that collapsed in the, in, in the US, but also what happened with UBS and, and Credit Suisse. We have many more interviews uh, lined up as well. Please keep subscribing to the podcast. If you haven't done so already, um, you know what? These podcasts are free. Go on to Apple Podcasts. Go write us a review. It's the best and the easiest way that I can get Mid-Atlantic up those podcast charts. And we'll have more excellent guests like Eli Merritt. Take care. Look after yourselves. Don't forget, left of thinking politics is right thinking politics, where we don't demonise our right-leaning brothers and sisters, but we try and bring them over with the strength of our argument. Thank you for giving me your time and your ears. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.